Okay, last week we, uh, we learned this, that Jesus' gracious, in fact, let's all read it all together. Jesus' gracious touch welcomes us into a journey of healing and revelation. That's what we learned last week, and this week we're, we're going to be looking at this. And let's read this together as well. These are the things of God, a Messiah who gave up his life so that I can know the value of my soul. Let's read it again. These are the things of God, a Messiah who gave up his life so that I can know the value of my soul. And when we say my soul, we're talking about you, okay? Who you are so that you can know what your value is. In 2015, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, Arnie, posed as a waxwork of himself in Madame Tussauds in Hollywood. Now, if you know Madame Tussauds, it's a waxwork museum. And so he posed, he posed as a waxwork of himself. And so people would walk up to what they thought was a waxwork of, you know, the Terminator, only to have him move and maybe put his arms around them and ask them if they want a selfie and they would run away screaming from this what they thought was a waxwork they find out is is a guy and uh, one of the best moments and and you can see this on youtube was when he walked up to a terminator impersonator so this is his job he goes around hollywood for photos has money you know you know all that kind of thing he walked up to a terminator impersonator and he said who are you and, uh, you know, and, the, and, and then the guy answered, and then they actually had this great face-off where each said, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. And it just went on and on. And, of course, Arnie, the real Arnie, was the one who won. But, you know, when we're thinking about that Waxwork Museum, it was hilarious to watch people scream and run away as they realized that this thing that they thought was one thing was not that actually it was something else completely different. The reality was actually much, much better than what they had in their minds. Let's turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Mark eight twenty-seven. says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. There are others who say Elijah, and still there are others who say that you are one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And this uh, and this really, really, a really important question, who do you say that I am, marks some sort of a turning point in Mark's account of Jesus' life. It's, um, it's like that moment in the movie when the real identity of someone is revealed. Uh, there's a shock and you as the watcher of the movie, this kind of light bulb goes off in your head, and then you want to go back and watch the whole movie again, knowing what you now know, because, of course, it will be really different knowing what you now know. It's a bit like Scooby-Doo, right? You know that there's not a monster or a ghost, that it's just an employee who's rather disgruntled or whatever, and that he's you know, trying to get his own back at, at, at those that he works for. 
And, and so the whole, whole of every single, um, so every time you watch Scooby-Doo, you're waiting to, for that moment when the mask is, re is removed and you hear the, that phrase, if it wasn't for you, pesky kids. And sometimes we can scuba dooify our Bible reading. That is, we can read a, pa a passage like what Peter says here in Mark 8:29. You are the Messiah, and we know that it will happen. And so we think to ourselves, it took you eight chapters to realize this, Peter? After all the healing and the storm stilling and the spirit exorcising and the teaching and the religious people annoying, who did you think he was all of that time? But the main thing is, and here we have to be fair on him, just like we would have to be fair on us if we were in his shoes. The main thing is, is that now in chapter 8, verse 29, Simon Peter finally realizes who Jesus is. And even though there are uh, those in the culture who don't know who he is, they think he's maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, Simon Peter understands who Jesus is. Is he's the Messiah, and this and this this moment, this this light bulb moment in Simon Peter's life forms a sort of a watershed between the first half of, of Mark and the second half of Mark. Everything changes from now on. Up until this moment, it's been hints and shadows and maybes, uh, but from now, this um, we we will see things a lot more more clearly. And that resistance with the religious leaders that's kind of been happening in the background, well, it will really crystallize and it will become a lot more malevolent. And who Jesus is, which has been hidden because, you know, he always runs away from the crowd. He says, don't say anything to anyone. Well, from now on, we will see Jesus as the Messiah shining more and more up until that moment on the cross when he nearly blinds us with the glory that we see, which is, of course, rather veiled. And so next week, that, that, um, that shining and that glow starts to happen up on the mountain with the transfiguration. But what really gets me here is that is, is, it's, it's the location, is that Simon Peter realizes who Jesus is in the town uh, of Caesarea Philippi. And why, why that's important is that, is, that, is, that, is that this was a huge cosmopolitan center. So if you wanted to worship maybe Baal, you, you could go over to, to, to his place and worship Baal there. If you wanted to worship maybe Pan, you know, the, the, the half goat, half man, you know, God, um, in the Greek faith, you could worship him there. If you wanted to worship Caesar, then you could worship him there. So Caesarea Philippi was like a smorgasbord of religious finger food. And in the midst of this, within sight of where you could worship Pan, where you could worship Baal, and where you could worship Caesar, here is Jesus saying to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter nails it. He aces the test. He gets it right 100%. He says, you are the Messiah. Now, if you read Matthew's account of what we're reading now in Matthew 16, uh, you'll see that Simon Peter's answer is actually a lot longer and more involved. And there we see, uh, we see actually Jesus give him 
you know, he, he says, you got it right. He hands him some sort of a gold star. But in Mark's account, which is what we're reading, which he got from Simon Peter, remember that, right? Is that everything that Mark writes, has, he's got verbally from the mouth of Simon Peter himself. So in Simon Peter's own account of himself, none of those extra stuff saying where, where Christ said to him, well done, you did well, none of that's here. And I love this because what's happening is Simon Peter is placing himself in the background and because he wants our focus to be on that forward phrase that's right at the center with this big spotlight shining on it, he wants us to be thinking only about these four words, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one who fulfills all of the prophecies that we have in our scriptures. You are it, Jesus, and I see that now. Now, I love going online and um, watching debates between, you know, someone who's a Christian and someone who's a skeptic, or between someone who's a Christian and another person who's a Christian, or someone who's a Christian and someone who's a Muslim. Uh, I love seeing how folks of different thoughts and different worldviews work through stuff and, uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and why I enjoy watching these is because it challenges my faith and it challenges my thinking and, and, and in the end, it never fails to make me worship God more because, because it reassures me that what we have in the Bible is absolutely true and uh, is not shakable. But one thing that I've learned from watching these and through my own life is that when we're talking about something important, especially something about faith, but really regardless of what it is, is uh, that it's important that um, we explain what our terms mean. So if I'm talking about sin and you're talking about sin, but I'm thinking about this thing about sin and you're thinking about this thing about sin, well, we can be talking about sin, but we're not talking about the same thing. And if I'm talking about faith and you're talking about faith and we're having a conversation about faith, but I've never defined what faith means and neither have you, then we're not really having, you know, we're not really getting anywhere. But, you know, so you can be talking about this and I can uh, think and I can hear you talking about this, but I think that you're talking about that. And so I respond to this, but all the while you're talking about this. And then you hear me respond to this, but you think I'm responding to this. And it really doesn't work. And I'm sure, in fact, let's have a hands raised if you've ever experienced that in your life, where, where, where you're just, you know, you're talking about something and it ends up being something completely different. Okay, good. Thank you for your honesty. So, so when, so when Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he's right and he's amazing that he sees this and it's glorious and he scores full marks, 100%. But then it's as if Jesus comes up to him and says, now when you say Messiah, what do you mean by Messiah? Would you explain to me what you mean by Messiah? In fact, hold on, you know, Let's hold that thought. Why don't I tell you what I believe Messiah means? Because 
Jesus knows that Simon Peter is thinking about this great story of the underdogs where the Jews fight and they win against the Romans. He knows that Simon Peter is thinking about military uprisings. He's thinking about rights beating wrongs. He, he, he knows that, that when Simon Peter says Messiah, that he's thinking about glory and trumpets and the banners and the flags and the triumph. Um, after all, Simon Peter has seen, seen Jesus do this. Uh, really, in the spirit world, he's seen him win with those who are in the um, religious higher ranks. He's seen Jesus free people from sickness and things that don't have any cure. And so Simon Peter knows that Jesus is about liberation, about freedom. And now here is Jesus in the middle of the center of religious faiths and secular power. And here he has those closest to him with him. And it's like he's finally taking off the mask and showing the world who he truly is. I am the Messiah hear me roar. But Peter could not have been more wrong. Let's turn to verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he, he must be killed and after three days rise again. Just, just listen to all the musts in that verse. Verse 32, he, he spoke plainly about this and, and and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his, his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I was 12 years old, and you know, pastors only have so many stories, so you've probably heard this before. But I was about 12 years old at school in St. Tylo's Comprehensive School over in Cardiff, Wales. And we were at a track meet, and it was my first track meet. And I was running down the track. I was flying down the track. It was, it was the 200-meter race. And uh, I was in the front, and I was facing a off against, you know, the best of the high schools in our region. And here I was in front of the pack. I was, I was winning. And so I ran around, you know, the bend, and I ran there into the straight, and I could see the finish line. I was unstoppable, but as I approached the finish line, I could feel myself overrunning myself, and I could feel myself falling, and I fell literally meters from the finish line. And that moment of glory that was within my grasp had been replaced by utter humiliation. And then I made up some lie about me fainting because no one wants to fall over. You have to have a reason, right? And so, yeah, and that lie is probably more embarrassing than the actual falling because no one's fooled. You look like an idiot. Own it. But uh, anyways, and that's how I see Simon Peter feeling at this moment. It's like he got 10 out of 10 in the test only to find out that, it was the wrong test. He, he saw Jesus as the Messiah, only to find out that it was a different sort of Messiah. And so 
And so as, as Jesus teaches them these many things, as it says in this passage, as, as Jesus teaches the, uh, his disciples these many things, I can imagine their jaws opening and their eyes widening and their hearts beating faster and faster that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Many things? You have to suffer many things and that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. Killed? And yes, Jesus went on to say, and after three days rise again, but they kind of checked out at that moment because they were still focused on the Messiah actually being killed because all that they could hear was suffer, be rejected, and, and be killed. And it's in these words that Jesus shows us what Messiah means. And it's like there's some sort of a block in Simon Peter's mind. He can't really compute it. It's not like he's rejecting it. It's like it's not even sinking in. He can't understand. There's this tribe in Namibia called the Himba tribe. And they have no word for blue. And so, you know, you can watch, watch tests, and there, there have been tests showing pe people from the Himba tribe, 12 squares, 11 are green and one is blue, and they cannot see the difference. They would see the blue square just as one, one more square, which is green. They just don't see it. And so, and so here what we see is uh, those closest to Christ, that for him to say that the word Messiah is equal to suffering and shame is like someone coming up to someone in the Himba tribe and saying that there's a color that you've never seen. In fact, it's right there in front of you. They, they, they have no reference point. And so Simon Peter thought that Jesus was removing his mask when he said to him, you are the Messiah. Yes, that's who it is. But in a scene worthy of any Mission Impossible movie, first Peter takes off Jesus' mask. You're the Messiah, I knew it. Only for Jesus to say, but I'm not that kind of Messiah. And he takes off the next mask, I'm this sort of Messiah. You see, he's the kind of Messiah who wears a crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. He's the sort of, of, of Messiah who, rather than sitting over everyone on a throne, will hang above everyone on a cross. He's the sort of Messiah who looks down with eyes of, of compassion and love instead of eyes of, of hatred. And I've won. This is the sort of Messiah he is. And Peter can't handle this because he knows that, you know, the color blue, it's a figment of, of your imagination. It doesn't exist. Everyone knows that there's no such thing as blue. And everyone knows that there's no such thing as this kind of Messiah. Everyone knows that. And so he reacts. He rebukes Jesus, his rabbi, his Messiah. He says, this is not how it works. I'm sorry, Jesus. This is not what I signed up for. Not this kind of Messiah. You see, Messiahs aren't killed. They rule. It's the false Messiahs who are killed. And Messiahs aren't rejected. They are 
They are loved. They are embraced. And what Jesus shows Simon Peter and what he shows us is that when we reinvent Jesus to suit our own agendas, we are doing Satan's work. When we speak what is not true, even with our best intentions, we are doing the work of hell itself. So if I was to stand here and I was to tell you that God loves you just the way that you are and that there's nothing that you have to do, then I would be the mouthpiece of Satan. If I was to stand here and tell you that there's no need for you to repent or change the way that you're living, if I was to tell you that all that matters is that you're sincere, if I was to tell you that all religions are essentially the same and they all lead into the same place, if I was to tell you that after you die, you still have a chance to repent and turn, if I was to tell you that, uh, that hell and heaven are just psychological constructs. If I was to tell you that you can do anything you want as long as both parties consent and as long as nobody's hurt, if I was to tell you that Jesus came so that you could have your, your most wonderful, your best life now, if I was to tell you any of this stuff, then I would be doing the work of Satan because I would be feeding you lies at the expense of the truth because all that matters is what God has revealed in the Bible. And so, and so at that moment in time, Christ hones in mercilessly, but also mercifully. And he says, and he, and he says to Simon Peter, Satan, you don't get to say to me what I came here to do. I know why I came. I came to Messiah in the only way that matters. I came to substitute myself for you. I'm here so that I can stand in your place and so that I can pay for the sin that you could never pay for yourself. I came to clear you, your account with a God who is holy and to show you that God is holy, that, it's, it's, that we aren't able to be in a relationship with him as long as we're contaminated by sin. I'm here to show you that that's the kind of Messiah I am. And I also came to show you that God is love, that he made a way for that relationship to be restored. And that's by me doing what I came to do as Messiah. Verse 34. Then... He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and, and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in, in, in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What... Jesus has just told Peter 
is that what he has in mind are the concerns of man rather than the concerns of God. And this is such an easy trap for us to fall into because the thing that Peter thought, because the thing is that Peter thought he was thinking about the, the, the thoughts of God. He thought that, but he was way off, way off base. We must remember that, that this God that we serve is the God of Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 where he says, where he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than, 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 than your thoughts. You know, you hear what he's saying. He's saying, my ways are not your ways. So whatever you're thinking about me, you need to check. You need to rethink. Whatever you, you think I have in my head, you need to stop and, 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 and you need to think again because Jesus' way as the Messiah led to a cross. His ways involved rejection and suffering. And, and, and why is this? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us why Jesus as Messiah had to involve suffering because it says this, for God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His punishment brought us our peace. This is this wonderful exchange which happened there on the cross. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 9 that he's found in Jesus not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That's the basis of his righteousness, his right standing. And so in the context of Simon Peter saying that Jesus is the Messiah and in the context of Jesus explaining what this Messiahship means, Jesus now calls those who want to follow after him to follow in his steps. And so we are called to a threefold life. We are called to... deny ourselves. We are called to to shoulder our cross. We are called to take up our cross and we are called to, to follow Jesus. But what does this mean and in what way are we supposed to do this? Because, because if we're supposed to carry our cross, wasn't Jesus' death on the cross, wasn't that a one-off through which we are reconciled, um, through, through which we are brought back into relationship with him? So if Jesus has already died and if Jesus has borne that cross for us, then why do we need to shoulder our cross ourselves because you know we know this is that we can never replicate what he did he's the only one who sacrificed himself who, who laid himself down for the sake of others so it cannot mean that by shouldering our own cross we're earning god's favor this man reuben has been crucified for 31 years straight in a, in a region of, of the Philippines. He, t he takes part in a reenactment of the death of Jesus Christ every year. And he's actually hung up on a cross and he has nails, 
through his wrists and his feet. So is that what it means for us to take up our cross? And the answer is no, because we could never take up our own cross in that sense. We can never make things right through our suffering. There's only one way, which is through faith in Christ. And so, whereas I look at Reuben and I, and there's some, there's, there's, there's one part of me, a small part of me that says, I respect that because he's sincere. He's going through something I would never go through. He's been crucified and he's done it for 31 years straight. But on the other hand, I say, Reuben, that's wasted. What a waste of time. What you're doing achieves nothing. In his Fresh Eyes series, there's this guy, uh, Mr. Doug Newton, who, 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 who says that often we use this phrase, this is my cross, which I have to bear. And he, and, and he makes this point that, that when we talk about bearing our own cross in that sense, it's our cross that we have to bear, that we're usually referring to a hardship or uh, something tough that we have to go through in life. It might be sickness, it might be noisy neighbors, it, it might be being, being, being passed over for a job, and we usually say it with a sense of stoicness and weary resignation. And really what we're saying, when we say, this is my, my cross, which I have to bear, we're saying God has handed me a bit of a tough hand in life, and my job is to accept it and to carry on. But that's not what taking up your cross means either. It's more than just somehow being able to get through life. So let's find out. So if we can go on to the next slide, Anya. Newton says this, that something isn't a cross until you are paying a personal price to provide a remedy for someone else's suffering, whether due to sin or foolishness or misfortune. He, he, then, explains, he, he then explains more. He says, only when we give up something that's rightfully ours or we put ourselves in harm's way or we jeopardize our security for someone else is it like Jesus' cross. And even then, it only faintly reflects what he endured. He says this, The true cr cross of Jesus calls you to lose what you may never regain so that you may give others what they may never deserve. And maybe, but only just maybe, others will see the love of God shown through your grace. Next slide. The cross is accepting unfairness. It's receiving poor treatment. It's not what? fighting back. So do you see how, how, how unreasonable this is? That, that, that what he's saying here, what he's saying, shouldering our cross means scratches against everything that we are told in our society. We are, we, we are told that you have to get yours, that it's your, that, that it's your res, res, responsibility. And then Jesus calls this crowd to him and says right off the bat, that you have to take up your cross, that you have to follow me, that you have to say no to yourself. And, you know, this isn't the master's level, you know. You know, he's, he's you, know, you know, these aren't the people who've been following him for year after year after year. This is right at the kindergarten level of faith. It's, it's those who've just met him and he's saying this is what it means. This is nursery school. This is 101 that whoever wants to 
wants, wants, to be, wants to be Jesus' disciple must do these things. They have to deny themselves. They have to take up their cross, and they have to follow him. These are the basic requirements, and then the rest of the Christian life is a living out of that day in and out, week in and out. And it sounds impossible, but it's not not when you consider the fact that the Son of Man suffered many things, that he was rejected, and that he was killed. Because this is what the good news of the gospel looks like. As we look, uh, 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 we look at what Jesus did, as we look at his messiahship, as we look at his punishment that brought us peace, we are drawn to it. We are won over by it. We are lost in its wonder and its glory. And what results from that being drawn, being drawn in are people who are transformed. And it's not people who suddenly have extra shoulders that they can, you know, walk through life. Uh, you know, that they don't have this extra capacity to, you know, to grin and bear it. That's not what it's about. But what you have is people who do the wrong thing, who were accepted by grace anyways. And the one who accepted them was the only one who ever did the right thing 100%. And they have been overhauled on the inside by this realization. And then out of that overhaul on the inside, the right thing starts to flow. Because, because the motivation to to really do the right thing and to live a life of not fighting back and, um, and not giving people what they deserve flows from the very heart of Christ himself. And what this means is that that cross that, 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 that we are called to shoulder starts to look very much like the light and easy yoke that Christ calls us to because they are both made of wood. And they are both something that Jesus shouldered. And they are both something that he asks us to shoulder with him in that yoke bearing and in that cross bearing. And then, and, and then Messiah gives us these wonderful topsy-turvy promises in verse 35 that look upside down. He says, whoever... Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and, the, and for the gospel will save it. And as we look at these promises through Jesus' eyes, we realize that they were not upside down at all. They are the right way up in the rightest possible way. You see, these aren't threats. These are promises. This is hope. These are encouragements. This is Jesus calling us to this true life. And the way that we enter into this life is by saying no to ourselves, is by taking up our cross and by following him. And I know that that's right. I know that life does not naturally generate within me. You know, that whenever I live a self-focused, self-obsessed life is when I'm the most miserable and the most self-loathing. It's ludicrous for me to even hope that by gaining life, I can somehow save my life. But when I lay my life down for my brothers and my sisters and those who are not worthy of that sacrifice, who've never earned it, that when I let myself become less so that Christ can shine through more when I let Jesus and the gospel so 
wrap itself around me, that I glory in its wonders and I savor its flavors and I'm mesmerized by its colors and shapes when I'm won over again and again by that shape of a perfect God hanging there on a tree that the Messiah in his glory, his, his, his broken glory, there for me, it's then that I can say, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And that's rhetorical because the answer is nothing. And yet we try to make that exchange all the time. I know that the answer is nothing. I know that the weight of one soul is more substantial than the weight of the entire world. And that the soul has a density unmatched by anything else in all creation. That That there's a heft to it that it's so worthy. It's absolutely precious. And so, and, so what, and so what Christ does is that he looks at each of us and he says, you know what? You're worth it. I am going to pay for you. And so if Jesus has looked at my soul and if he's made an appraisal and if he said to me that it's worth his own life, then who am I to come back and get a, 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 a second opinion? A, a second opinion. Who am I to walk into a thrift shop with my soul and say, how much am I able to get for this? And it's in this context of incredible sacrifice that Jesus says in verse 38, don't be ashamed of me. Because if you come anywhere close to understanding how much Jesus values you, then it's the greatest absurdity for you to be ashamed of him and his words because that would be like me being saved one week from a horrible fire and the firefighter comes in and I'm passed out on the ground and he throws me over his shoulder and he runs out of the house and then the next week I see, I see him in the street, this man that risked life and limb for me and then I turn to my friend and I go, oh my gosh, he's so embarrassing. Let's just pretend we don't know him. You know, the Lord wants us to be so caught up in the, in the astounding news of this suffering servant, so amazed at the salvation that has been handed to us for, for free through Christ, that we are transformed into living the kind of life that we could never otherwise live. And so my plea is please don't give anything in exchange for your soul. Jesus went all in for you. This, the, the, He gave everything, everything on the table, such crazy stakes, the highest that they've ever been in the history of this world. And he weighed your soul and he said, you are worth it. And so I am going to pay it. He said, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I must be killed because it was the only way. But then he also said on the third day, I must rise again. And he did. And it's these things that are the things of God. These are the concerns of God of verse 33. And it's because of these things that he calls us into this relationship of following him as we say no to ourselves, as we take up our cross and we follow him. 
we must lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. And in losing our lives, we will find it. We will save it. We must realize that our souls outweigh anything that this world has to offer by a factor of infinity. And how can we know what the value of a soul is? By looking at the one hanging on the cross, the one who gave everything because he knew the value of your soul, because he knew the value of my soul. This is how we glory in the message of the gospel. This is how we wait for the return of the Father in his glory with the holy angels.